0: Ladies and gentlemen, breaking news coming on my wire. Bandcamp has been acquired by Epic Games, which means I have no fucking idea. I have no, no idea. Like, so, so can I play Fortnite and Vic Spencer? Uh, yeah, you know what? I'm here for it. In the words of public gaming, Chuck D, bring the noise. 5th Podcast Network, I'm Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. I mean, I'm not, I'm moving to it now, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm just like, you know what, if I could, bro, bro, bro honestly, games just elevate when you have a boss soundtrack. They, they just elevate. Like, the best games in my lifetime... Are the ones with boss soundtracks, like the Warriors boss soundtrack, Need Speed Most Wanted 2005, obviously boss soundtrack, Need Speed Underground 2, boss soundtrack, uh, any SSX game, boss soundtrack, right? It just it just works. It just well, every single time it works. It's great. It's it's wonderful. So. Mate, honestly, if Epic Games could get a decent soundtrack going, fuck it, man. Let's play some Fortnite. Let's get it. Let's, let's fucking get it. No, I'm never, <laughs> I've never played Fortnite. I'm sorry, it's not happening. It's just not happening. I'm, I, I, there's nothing that will get me to play it. I just, I just, um, I don't know. There was a time actually where um, there, there was like a uh, YouTubers I subscribed to, you know, gamers, right? And they played. They were playing Fortnite, you know, when it was hot um, you know, like season, like, you know, the first couple of seasons, right? Early on. And, uh, I was into it. I was, I was, I was, I was vibing with it. It's just cause they were having mad bands with it. Like, um, I remember that one video where like, uh, uh, Mark Phillips, RDC world, uh, they, they were playing Fortnite and, uh, <laughs> it was one where they just had this sweaty dub and, uh, like they had a sniper go right past Mark's head and he was like, Oh my God. Oh! It's just, it's great it's great it's great like honestly those are those it doesn't matter what game it's more about the person to be honest like i I can yeah Uh, unless unless they play something like hitman and completely just go call of duty on it then then that turns me off like if you ain't playing the game how it should be played then go fuck yourself to be honest like um that's why that's why none of my people i follow on youtube uh gamer have played Mel solid because yeah there's just no way like these lot play these lot play action they they want to get active they always want to get active imagine them trying to like fucking uh play MGS3 and like put on the correct camo and uh, you know hide in the bushes as a uh, or hide in the gro under in the undergrowth while you know they're on caution it's not going to happen it's just not going to happen they're going to it's a bit boring it's not content so you know it is what it is but anyway apart from that um yeah bad camp i mean yeah, I mean, that's kind of weird, I guess, because considering what well, Bandcamp is, right, um, it's, it's, it's a bit different from, like, um, like buying, you know, a label. It's a bit different. It's a marketplace, if anything. So I don't know how that works, but we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. But, yeah, that just came around in my way. Like I started recording, and I was just like, hmm, okay, interesting. But anyway, let's get into the show. Uh, two, uh, two of the obvious, two uh segments dedicated to the obvious story um this uh, this episode and then two some completely different <laughs> uh, in your know, classic classic was good fashion uh but yeah formats before we begin email says id discord link all that all that all that in the full show notes please go peep the articles for yourself give them a read and support the writers that make this show possible and with that said let the beat drop and let's get into the show a week where Russia invade Ukraine and a ton of other stuff towards that, that's very loaded. That's a very loaded uh, uh, bit of a in a week where, isn't it? Uh, happy Women's History Month, on and all, um, So obviously throughout March, and uh, if you want hit, to uh, help hit digging digits, we're going to be doing five uh, retrospectives, two females in hip hop. We just did our first one, uh, all about Roxanne Shanté. So uh, get on that in the full show notes, um, right at the bottom. Uh, Liverpool beat Chelsea on penalties to win the Carabao Cup. Um, two things about that: one, objectively, just one of the best games i've seen in a minute and two um i've had a Carabao once and it was okay like it's fine but i'm just wondering how many of you've actually seen a can of Carabao in the wild like not in the shop not in the shop but people actually drinking it out in the wild i've never seen anybody drink it out in the wild i've seen i've drank it before i've had a can before years ago when it initially when initially dropped i was like oh that's interesting because um, at that point, I was just like really into energy drinks and like you know, I was always down for trying something new. Um, but yeah, it's okay, it's okay, it's fine, good flavors. Um, like you know, better than Monster, but not better than like a Red Bull or a Relentless, maybe. Um, but anyway, yeah, I just, I just wonder who's actually seen a Caraval um, out in the wild. Uh, House of Lords vote to remove clause nine of the Nationality and Borders Bill. Obviously, we've been talking about that on, on the show a couple of times in the past few months, so that's a really good thing. Um, and, uh, yeah, just another, another pushback, another L for the, for, for, for the demon, um, that is Pre Patel. And lastly, <laughs> British MPs are to receive a 2.7% uh, percent increase in pay, going from 81,000, or nearly 82,000, to 84,000. Um, so, yeah, that's great, because 80k, man, 80 fucking K, Jesus Christ, imagine, fuck it, I might become an MP for that cash, like, fuck it, let's do it. Vote for me. <laughs> I Um uh, Right, let's get started. So, I didn't know how to tackle this um uh this Russo-Ukraine uh crisis uh, well invasion now It's a bit more than a crisis now um and I didn't really know like what kind of vehicle to get um so but I did find one um and it's kind of like a more I kind of I guess I wanted to find an overall thing I didn't want to fi- I didn't want to look up like you know a daily report so to speak because obviously that's just gonna age like milk um that's gonna aid that's gonna be obsolete as soon as I stop recording so um I, I I think I found something that's you know relatively overall and relatively macro and zooming out um so and you know I love my zooming out I feel like uh you know just adds, um it just it just makes the makes these episodes much more worthy um, down the line, you know what I mean, just as a little time capsule I guess, that's how I like to think about it sometimes, um, so this is uh, via the Guardian, this is an opinion piece by Mr Yuval Noah Harari, um, amazing author, um, historian, um, author of uh, books such as, uh, well just the Sapiens books, I think he has a couple of them now, um, I have one of them, an audio book and I haven't gotten to it, um, but yeah, it's a really fascinating, um, just on the face, and uh, I think he delivered a really good, uh, really good opinion here. So uh, let's get into it. A week, less than a week into the war, it seems increasingly likely that Vladimir Putin is heading towards a historic defeat. He may win all the battles, but still lose the war. Putin's dream of rebuilding the Russian Empire has always rested on the lie that Ukraine isn't a real nation, that Ukrainians aren't a real people, and that the inhabitants of Kiev, Kharkiv, and Lviv yearn for Moscow's rule. That's a complete lie. Ukraine is a nation with more than a thousand years of history, and Kiev was already a major metropolis when Moscow was not even a village. But the Russian despot has told this li- told his lies so many times that he apparently believes himself. When planning his invasion of Ukraine, Putin could count on many known facts. He knew that militarily, Russia dwarfs Ukraine. He knew that NATO would not send troops to help Ukraine. He knew that European dependence on Russian oil and gas would make countries like Germany hesitate about imposing stiff sh- sanctions. Based on these known facts, his plan was to hit Ukraine hard and fast, decapitate its government, establish a puppet regime in Kiev, and ride out uh, the Western sanctions. But there was one big unknown about his plan. As the Americans learned in Iraq and the Soviets learned in Afghanistan, it is much, it is much easier to conquer a country than to hold it. Putin knew he had the power to conquer Ukraine, but would the Ukrainian people just accept Moscow's puppet regime? Putin gambled that they would. After all, as he repeatedly explained to anyone willing to listen, Ukraine isn't a real nation, and the Ukrainians aren't a real people. 2014, people in Crimea hardly resisted the Russian invaders. Why should 2022 be any different? With each passing day, it is becoming clearer that Putin's gamble is failing. The Ukrainian people are resisting with all their heart, winning the admiration of the entire world, and winning the war. Many dark days lie ahead. The Russians may still conquer the whole of Ukraine, but to win the war, the Russians would have to hold Ukraine, and they can do that only if the Ukrainian people let them. This seems increasingly unlikely to happen. Each Russian tank destroyed and each Russian soldier killed increases the Ukrainians' courage to resist, and each Ukrainian killed deepens the Ukrainians' hatred of the invaders. Hatred is the ugliest of emotions, but for oppressed nations, hatred is a hidden treasure. Very deep in the heart, it can sustain resistance for generations. To re-establish the Russian Empire, Putin needs a relatively bloodless victory that will lead to a relatively hateless occupation. By spilling more and more Ukrainian blood, Putin is making sure his dream will never be realised. It won't be Mikhail Gorbachev's name written on the death certificate of Russian of the Russian Empire. It will be Putin's. Gorbachev left Russians and Ukrainians feeling like siblings. Putin has turned them into enemies and has ensured that the Ukrainian nation will henceforth define itself in opposition to Russia. Nations are ultimately built on stories. Each passing day adds more stories that Ukrainians will tell not only in the dark days ahead, but in the decades and generations to come. The president who refused to flee the capital, telling the US that he needs ammunition, not a ride. The soldiers from Snake Island who told a Russian warship to, quote, go fuck yourself, unquote. The civilians who tried to stop Russian tanks by sitting in their path. This is the stuff nations are built from. In the long run, these stories count for more than tanks. The Russian despot should know this, uh, this as well as anyone. As a child, he grew up on a diet of stories about German atrocities and Russian bravery in the siege of Leningrad. He is now producing similar stories, but casting himself in the role of Hitler. The stories of Ukrainian bravery give resolve not only to Ukrainians, but to the whole world. They give courage to the governments of European nations, to the US administration, and even to the oppressed citizens of Russia. If Ukrainians dare to stop a tank with their bare hands, the German government can dare to supply them with some anti-tank missiles, the US can dare to cut Russia off swift, and Russian citizens can dare to demonstrate their opposition to this senseless war. We can all be inspired to dare to do something, whether it is to make a donation, welcome refugees, or help with the struggle online. The war in Ukraine will help shape the future of the entire world. If tyranny and aggression are allowed to win, we will all suffer the consequences. There is no point to remain just observers, it is time to stand up and be counted. Unfortunately, this war is likely to be long-lasting, take different forms, it may well continue for years, but the most important issue has already been decided. The last few days have proved to the entire world that Ukraine is a very real nation the Ukrainians are a very real people, and that they definitely don't want to live under a new Russian empire. The main question left open is how long it will take for this message to penetrate the Kremlin's thick walls. So that's the entirety of the piece, that's the entirety of the piece, and um, I mean, yeah, it's very poetic um, in in its writing, obviously, and uh, shout to Harari for that, Um, and yeah, I feel, but in some ways, right? There's there's something jarring about all of this. In some ways, it's just the fact that you know um, there's plenty of other shit, shit going on, and I guess this is always the thing, right? Um, especially in this day and age, where you know we can see everything, right? Um, a lot of shit is a lot of shit is hidden, um, but a lot of shit is uncovered as well. And um, when it comes to you know name name a tr- put atrocity here. Um, most of the time, the response isn't as heavy as this, and uh, you know, I could be critical about that. And I sometimes, and in my mind, I, I, you know, and um, you know, now now and again during the past week or so, obviously, it's been been over a week now, um, of the invasion itself, you know, I I consistently think about just like, okay, oh, this is this is interesting of how. You know, we always everyone's covering this, and I think the I think it's partly because of where I live, right? I live in the UK, I'm British, and you know I'm inside the continent of Europe, not actually the European Union or anything, because that's fun. Um, and because of that, I feel like because of the closeness towards it, even though it's you know a few thousand miles, it's because it's so close, and because it it, ma- it, it makes everything relevant. Um. It it makes everything relevant, and because it's relevant here, it's going to be covered, right? Um, but then at the same time, I'm just like, I'm I'm a bit I'm, I get a bit annoyed of how you know they they talk on the news about um, domestically, uh, you know Boris Johnson's job is safe, and I'm just like, and I, I was thinking about this today, I was just like, what, what's going on with that Sue Gray report, right? Was, what's going on with the police investigation? Is that still going? Well, you know. I, it it seems like some it seems sometimes that people can't walk and chew gum, you know. It's it's a bit it's a bit annoying sometimes of how, um, you know, coverage and ha- where where people's thoughts lie on everything, right? And you know, obviously the all the all the, the fake gesturing. I feel is a lot of gesturing and not anything else than that. Um, you know, people wearing Ukrainian flags. I mean, sure. Great picture, but like, you know, you do anything else for it, Um, you know. And I have the same thought towards you know a lot of other things. And you know, it's it's it's, it's fine. It's it's fine to raise awareness. It's kind of easy, let's be real, to raise awareness about an atrocity in this day and age, right? It's it's very easy. Um, me me and you retweeting uh, Ukraine is under attack, um, you know, is fine. Um But you know, it's not the be all and end all. It's not like it's. it's I swear, I swear, I saw like a cartoon once where like someone just ah, uh, it was itchy that someone sees the atrocity, tweets about the atrocity, and then just like, there we go, job done. I mean, it's just uh, there's a lot of that vibe going on, and um, you know, I I I try not to participate in that in any fashion. Um, maybe in like the, uh, you know, every I mean, opinions are assholes, and everybody has one, and I use my opinion now and again. And I'm sure you guys do that as well. Um, But, you know, it's up to in in the same... Well, amazing segue, right? I'm going to do that. Yeah, amazing segue to... next segment which is all about climate right how we can all do you know uh, how, how we can do our bit right you know we can all retweet something in the same way we can all uh <laughs> uh, re- uh um, what's the word oh lost that word um we can retweet something in the same way we can uh, oh yeah use plastic straws right <laughs> but as it pertains to this as it pertains to the climate as it pertains to Ukraine it's all up to the government i literally found this uh, statista um piece uh, uh, gra- graphic of uh, the estimated um uh, global footprint uh, uh, co2 emission share by income groups lower 50% um is uh, has 10% of the emissions uh, middle class middle 40% have the have 43% uh, the next nine percent is uh, thirty-two, and uh, the top one percent is fifteen. But if you, add if but if you cut that into, um, in tons per person, the average annual CO two emissions per person, one percent is forty-eight. Next nine twelve, middle forty-four, and a lower fifty-one. How does th- how does that work? So in the same way as Ukraine, and the same way as climate change, I can do some things. You can do some things, we can all do our bit, but at the end of the day, it comes to up top. It comes to decisions up top. And that's the thing that angers me most of the time when I think about these things, I'm just like, stop fucking gesturing and do something. Like, it's, <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Anyway, speaking of, um, this is a piece uh, via Novara Media, it's called uh, Another Opinion Piece, um, it's called uh, uh, Putin's War is Bad News for the Climate. It's by Mr. Paul Rogers. Let's jump right in. Two days into his assault on Ukraine and it's clear... Uh, well, see, this is uh, in 25th February, so, you know, take the two days into a pinch of salt. Um, into his assault on Ukraine and it's clear Vladimir Putin is set on taking the country back under Russia's political control. Whether that means full occupation and regime change isn't yet certain. But what we're looking at is already the most serious security crisis in Europe since NATO's bombing of Russia's ally Serbia back in 1999. This crisis may turn out to be far more costly, even if NATO doesn't directly intervene against Russian forces. If NATO did get involved directly, Putin has warned of a response never seen in history. (laughs) Fuck, okay. I mean, yeah, I I can understand that. This implies a nuclear response, an implicit recognition of NATO's huge advantage in conventional military forces. Uh, a nuclear war should would be just about the only act of human folly that could exceed the great security challenge of our time, climate breakdown. As such, NATO, the EU, and other states will go into great lengths, go to great lengths to avoid direct confrontation, opting to impose economic and political sanctions on Russia instead. These will include sanctions against Russia's oil and gas exports, which have already surged in price due to current events. Such san- sanctions, I can't say s- sanctions properly. Sometimes, change, <laughs> 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 may not damage uh, Russia's economy in the short term, as the country has sizable foreign exchange reserves. And China would almost certainly be a winning buyer if European markets are curbed. Even so, given the existing problems, we should expect major upheavals in the global economy. To get a handle on this, it is worth going back to the first oil price crisis in 1973/4. Oil prices were far lower than now. But action in October 1973 by OPEC, the oil, oil producers group, uh, caused a price hike of over 400% in nearly si- in barely six months, ushering in a period of stagflation, a damaging combination of inflation and economic stagnation. This in turn catalyzed the transition to the current neoliberal economic system that 40 years on is so problematic. As we move into the likely period of stagnation and austerity today, there will be strident calls for wholesome, wholesale curbs on any new investment in green industries, the argument being that money must be saved to see us through the current crisis. When the risk of crime breakdown was first widely recognised back in the early 1990s, intensive diplomacy led to the Kyoto Protocols and the early action on decarbonisation. These developments, however, were blown out of the water by the election of George W. Bush, in 2000 and his new administration's antipathy to the very idea of action on climate change. Given the power of the US and fossil fuel corporations and producer countries strong oppositions to decarbonisation the best part of a decade was lost. Further setbacks came with Donald Trump's climate change denial a position shared by Russia, Australia and some other states and always fermented by corporations. In the past few years however developments in both climate science and renewable energy along with the experience of initial climate breakdown, have all moved public opinion towards the need for urgent climate action. To put it another way, the Overton window has shifted in the direction of decarbonisation. Pro-carbon lobbies, meanwhile, have made committed and well-funded rearguard attempts to shift the window Excuse me, back the other way. In the UK, for example, there is a well-resourced campaign to argue against funding for rapid green transition. In Westminster, the Net Zero Scrutiny Group is at the centre of these efforts, while many members of the European Research Group make common cause. The Global Warming Policy Forum, meanwhile, has just published a briefing titled revitalized North Sea Exploration and Start Fracking or Lose Pu- Putin's Energy War for Good this alone gives a sense of the kind of arguments that will be pursued relentlessly by the impact of the global economic upheavals prompted by Russia's invasion of Ukraine the crisis is is itself immensely serious given Putin's determination to prevail come what may but the threat to decarbonization efforts puts Russia's war in an even wider frame and just when progress towards climate justice is becoming possible um Yes yeah, so that's the entire article right there um nice and quick um something I always think about um and part of the reason why i um part of the reason why I wanted to read that um is partly because i see a lot of things right now um through a lens of just climate right um i'm not as um <sighs> i'm not as uh consistent um in you know my action towards um uh towards uh, towards climate action, right? My actions towards climate action are not very actionable. Um, you know so there's there's some most of the time I'm consciously aware of it, right? There are times where I'm there are times where you know I'm just like fuck it, but it's rarely it really happens. Um, I constantly I now constantly look at um, every packaging I have if I'm you know if I you know used a, a bottle of water or whatever, can I recycle it right? Uh, can I recycle the the wrapping, whatever? Right, and I just you know always I always take note of that kind of stuff. I don't know how deep. Uh, I don't know if that's deep. I don't think it's deep. I really don't. I feel like most people can and should do that. Um, towards everything they consume. Um, you know, when I when I buy when I buy a package, I'm just like, why is this shrink wrap so much? You know what I mean? This is it's a lot of the time. It's always that. Um. I would, yeah I would always see something and I'm just like fuck why, why is there so why is there so much wrapping and why can't I recycle none of this da, da 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 right I'm always conscious of that stuff right and I feel like that's and again going back to the uh, to the start of the segment that's kind of why that's the that's the that's the furthest I go right and I give money in some ways to climate offsetting um as well I do that as well. Um, but yeah, that's kind of just where I stand, like, um, in terms of that, in terms of what I feel like I can and should do, I feel like that's a, bi- a bare minimum, um, in terms of regular person, uh, maybe not climate offsetting, if you want, if you don't want to pay for that, if you, you know, if you, I mean, there's people, <laughs> there's actually people here in the UK that can't afford fucking heating, okay, and have to choose between heating or food, so I'm not exactly expecting them to pay a monthly um, subscription thingy to, uh, you know, climate offsetting, right, so, I'm not expecting that of people. I'm not expecting that of most people, right? But I feel like for me, that's a bare minimum. As from where I stand, I feel like I can do that. I feel like I can. So, with that said, I th- I constantly think about just um, you know um, especially when um uh, when I record as it is um, as it is recording um the you know the barrage of just like uh, uh missiles that that hit Ukraine yesterday. Um as I record it was just like fuck like like they're gonna have to you know rebuild that and that's gonna take a lot right and I don't think infrastructure is you know exactly uh climate friendly these days right i, don't, I, st- I still don't think it is uh, unless they unless there's you know a very specific um private entity or a very specific person that actually cares about that kind of shit. Um, a lot of this stuff it kind of just goes by the wayside, and again, that kind of goes to where I'm talking. What I'm talking about, where I feel like you know we should be talking about climate every uh, every day. You know, I feel like we should be reading something about it every day and constantly making strides towards it. I feel like every government, honestly, should have. Um, I'm I'm sure all of them do in some ways have like you know a climate minister or something like that. You know, a green minister, what? But- but I don't see him. Uh, let me look it up right now. Who, I'll, I'll, let me look up who's the green energy, uh, minister for for the UK. I, d- I don't know, like green 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 energy, energy minister. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> minister for green energy. There you go. Is there, is there such a thing? Uh, okay. Minister of uh, State for Business, Energy, and Clean Growth. Right there, you go. Right Honourable Greg Hands. Who? H- who he? Who is that? I I legit I-, I legit don't know who that is. So you know what I mean? Like, it, do- it doesn't it doesn't it's just not good enough. You know what I mean? I'm not seeing this guy. Okay, I'm I'm seeing his, uh he's I'm se- I'm seeing his face on Wikipedia. Never seen him before. Don't know who he is. No idea mp for uh chelsea and fulham apparently there you go which is which is i which is highly just amazing to think wow that's just great that's that's so ironic isn't it all that grand all, all the fact you know grenfell uh, is in chelsea and kensington area and uh you know chelsea is a very rich part of london it's just oh, all of that it's just hilarious just hilarious isn't it like the group the, the the minister for business energy and clean growth is the MP for Chelsea and Fulham. I, you you just can't write it. You, you simply cannot write it. Fucking hell. Um but yeah man, I kinda of wanted to just have that article just to say that um I constantly think about it. And I'm not saying you should too. I mean you should, but you know, I'm not preaching. Um but yeah it's just something I always it's always on my mind and especially when you know something like this happens, I'm just like There's there's so many things that are just always swept under the rug for these kind of things. And uh, I find that kind of just jarring in some ways. Um, Again, the fact that people can't walk and chew gum. Um, Not all of you have to be um, concerned with Ukraine. You can still do your jobs. You know what I mean? You know, as we all do we'll continue on with our lives regardless of what's happening in ukraine right obviously we're gonna sit down watch the news maybe and have a peep or you know get a notification from bbc news or wherever you you would get your news right of just you know occasional ukraine updates but you know at the end of the day you're going to work you're doing your life you're living your life um everyone's trying to survive out here you know what i mean so it is what it is um but for me I'm always just conscious of it, and uh, I always try to see whatever I'm doing through a green lens. Um, I don't drive um, for fifty percent that reason. Um, you know, I take public transport. I walk a lot of the time. Um, you know, I do my. I feel like I do my bit. Um, but yeah, it's just a bit irritating how sometimes. Uh, big things just to you know take over everything and just engulf everything and you know a lot of things are just pushed to the wayside even though long term is i mean this in particular especially especially climate breakdown is a consistent existential threat Over 20 minutes of uh, Ukraine uh, Russia stuff. Let's get into something a bit different. And uh, this is something I've been thinking about uh, recently. I was, you know, I've, I'm a regular listener to reggae, right? And uh, you know, I felt like I didn't really understand uh, Rastafarianism a lot, right? It's just, it's just one of those things where I'm aware of what they're talking about in some way, but not really. Um, so, you know, I did a bit of digging, got some, you know, base learning into that and, uh, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm, you know, a good place on that front, but you know, um uh, I'm not, you know, going to go into Rastafarianism or anything, I'm not, I'm not that, uh, I'm not that gripped by it, um, but for one, one thing I was really, that really made me think, and this is before I saw The Cycle actually, um, was... Nobody talks. We always talk about Rastafarian men, right, and think about Rastafarianism as a male thing, right. We see the dreads, you know, and they're all packed in those big ass hats, and you know, whatever, uh, Bob Marley, etc., right, uh, weed, right. But we never think about Rastafarian women. Never, I've never, th- I've never think about Rastafarian women. I find that, and I find that really odd. Um, you know, I know a spiritual. Um, spiritual is the word. I know women. I know women that are, you know, um, that are maybe either in Rastafarianism or close to it. Um, shout out to uh, John Nyan, who's um, pregnant. Um, she's an amazing artist, amazing roots reggae artist. Um, but you know, when you when you peep her IG or whatever, um, you know, she's you know she's talks about the higher blessings and stuff like that. I don't know if that's Rastafarianism or just a general spirituality in in her uh, in her demeanor. Um, but it's interesting. It's it's interesting thinking about people like such as someone like Jar Nine. Um, but anyway, this is a, this is I mean Jar Nine. She probably is Rustified. <laughs> for stage name Jar Nine. <laughs> I don't I don't know. I need to look up uh, why she's named Jar Nine. <coughs> but anyway, uh, anyway, I found this article, amazing uh, feature article actually by Liam Mann. Um, called uh, via the voice called Rastafarian Women in Britain I couldn't be anything else but a Rasta and um, this is just very interesting I really enjoyed reading this so uh, let's jump right in for many Rastafarians a journey to embracing the faith as a way of life began in Britain far away from its roots in the Caribbean it was as, it was as Jamaica remained under colonial rule that Marcus Garvey a black nationalist leader uh, and the leader of Pan-African movement began the teachings of early Rasta ideology he wanted people of African descent to unify and connect to their blackness after the horrors of the transatlantic slave trade. Though through denouncing the rhetoric of black inferiority, Garvey preached about the crowning of a king in Africa during the 1920s. By the next decade, Ethiopian Emperor, His Imperial Majesty Haile Selassie I, uh, or the first, uh, I say, we just say I. We, what do I say, we. I'm just a reggae listener, uh, was crowned in 1930 and is believed by Rastafarians today to be the second coming of Christ to returned to redeem all black people. The Rasta movement soon swept across black communities in the US and Britain and also found a home in small corners of the Caribbean. Sheba Levi Stewart, a member of the Rastafari movement UK, told the voice that the music of a newly independent Jamaica in the mo- moment she first saw His Majesty was what began her journey as a Rasta. Quote, one of my cousins happened to be the amplifier and builder in Jamaica at the time, so I was living with music. He played 24-7, and on top of that, there was a dance hall next, to, next door to us, uh, and my auntie always had our radio on as well, she says. So music was influencing me from an early age. My cousin, he was into the roots music, so I was getting a lot of cultural stuff. And then in 1966, uh, when His Majesty came to Jamaica, he, my cousin, uh, took me, uh, when I was eight years old at the time, He took me and my sister to see his majesty. The colours red, uh, unquote, by the way, the colours red, gold and green, which are symbolic to the Rasta religion, were amidst a sea, uh, sea whites that day. Recall Sheba and being surrounded by proud and unifying Rastafarians, uh, Rastafarians, uh, quote, I remember looking at his majesty and just feeling like this electric, feeling this like an electric charge. The atmosphere that day was just really dynamic. There was electricity there. Uh, That's how it felt to me as an eight-year-old child, and so my journey started there without me even realising, unquote. The Rasta movement, despite its belief system stemming from Garvey, Jamaican born and bred, and becoming prominent in his birthplace in Jamaica, to truly have lived as a Rasta on the island was still shrouded in shame and secrecy. The working class and those in the ghetto who chose his way of life were shunned even more from society. Sister Benji Uwimana, a member of the Church of Haile Selassie, says that her journey to practicing the Rastafarian religion started on the island as she grew up with her auntie and uncle. She admits in post-colonial Jamaica, quote, society wasn't for it still. Uh, You still, you couldn't just be straight or brazen with it. You had to sort of hide it. It was an undercover thing. My parents or guardians went into it. My family, they believed in Christianity. That was the thing in Jamaica at the time and I went to Sunday school. It's one of the main reasons why my mother cut me off because my grandmother told her this Rasta business was getting too much. unquote. So, fun fact um, Rastafarianism is actually rooted in kind of like in, in the middle of like Judaism and Christianity, um, leaning more Christianity than Judaism, but a little bit of Judaism in there, right? Um, and I've been listening to this audiobook um, by Harris Joshua called The Circle of Five, and it's basically um, a story about how these about five um, Jamaican women. Uh, emigrated to the UK um you know in different and they have different stories and you know different experiences and it's very interesting um, and a lot of them uh, majority of them i think maybe all five um talk about you know going to the church at some point and you know believing in christian faith at some point um, so it's very interesting thinking about that and how rastafarians at the time were um just not that people weren't about Rastafarianism it's very interesting how that how that uh, came how that came about and, and it's even more interesting thinking about it now of how um, you know I'm sure Christianity is still, is, is still you know is dominant in Jamaica but Rastafarianism was, was obviously so culturally worldwide now so um, it's interesting to think about anyway let's continue on Jamaica, much like the rest of the Caribbean, still harboured the legacy of the stra- slave trade where many black people still worked on sugar plantations as a form of employment even after its abolition in 1834 and the established embellishment of the empire still had its presence in places like schools and museums. In a part of the world shaped by white colonial rule for many Caribbean people, the motherland that they grew up learning uh, was in England and not Africa. Society still positioned black people at the bottom, says Sister Benji, where the lighter you were, the more likely uh, to get a job the more likely you were more... What? The lighter you were, you were more likely to get a job or work in the banks. Right, okay. Weird wording there. Uh, many Rastas were also subject to persecution for their beliefs despite ble- uh, despite living in the place of its birth. For Sister Benji, it was inevitable that she f- she would find solace in a way of life that uplifted what it meant to be black in a country and a world that didn't. Quote, when Rastafari Bredrin would pass uh, Breddin I don't know if it's supposed to be bredrin or there's no a second half anyway. Bredrin uh, would pass by, and even in school, there were girls and boys who were from the deep separate areas who were talking about Rasta. She recalls, everybody listened and shared shared ideas. I thought, just wow, this thing was promoting blackness, a black king, Africa, how to be black. So as a young child growing up, you would be drawn into drawn to something like uh, that was like promoting positiveness about your whole being. Unquote she also relates to how her christian family one side seventh day adventist and the other baptist uh, similarly resisted her love in becoming a rasta she describes them as typical colonial people who were anti-rasta anti-blackness and anti-africa it wasn't until the end of the 1960s as hundreds of caribbean uh people made the voyage to britain after the second world war that the two women say uh that uh, that is where their belief in living the rastafarian way uh, began to flourish way of life began to flourish. Throughout the 50s and 60s, the rest of the community bloomed throughout Brixton, Notting Hill and eventually started to make its way through some of the UK's other major cities like Liverpool and Manchester. Sheba later settled in Birmingham with her mum and sister before start, uh, starting again at 17 years old in the capital. Post-war London was already emerging as a cultural hub of merging ethnicities and cultures from around the world and the reggae sounds of Bob Marley, Burning Spear and Israel vibrations became a daily part of Sheba's life. She began reading more and more while living in Britain, away from the small Island Jamaica. She found that her roots lay in the motherland in Africa, quote. My research took me away from that and made me realise that there was more to us than Jamaica, she says. Reading the philosophy and opinions of Marcus Garvey opened my whole consciousness of us as a people and our beginnings. I kept my consciousness and my learnings to just certain people. But then I realised the spirituality of his majesty and the dynasty back to Solomon and Sheba. And the Bible and Ethiopia as the world history uh, that just gave me that confidence and that push where I couldn't be anything else but a Rasta, unquote. Sheba went from per- uh, perming her hair every two weeks to growing out her hair in dreadlocks or locks for the first time, a sign of strength in the Rastafarian religion. She adorned her new locks with a headscarf to protect her modesty and its sacredness in another turn to embrace in the way of life. Sister Benji arrived in Britain two days uh, before her 16th birthday during the 70s, and also began reading more about what it, what it means, what it meant to be a Rasta. While on British shores, uh, she found a community during her early school years that she didn't find in Jamaica, and got together with the boys and girls uh, she met and dress, uh, met and shared ideas. She used to meet girls, Rastas' boyfriends, girls' Rasta boyfriends outside school gates when the day was over. "Quote: I got in a lot of trouble with my mum." Her friend who had uh, children in school would come and tell her, oh, your daughter is turning everyone into raster at school. She recalls, I started wearing a headscarf and then everyone in the school came and wearing a headscarf. I got in trouble with the headmistress as well. At home, my mum would say, you're such a lovely and obedient child except for this Rasta thing. I used to try and show her in the Bible that these people were black. She describes the emerging Rastafarian community as something that uh, this uh, unquo- that was unquote. By the way, she describes the emerging community as something that was new in Britain. But she says they had to cling together, and be unified in a different part of the world that still spewed anti-black rhetoric. In the years that saw mass migration to Britain, Enoch Powell made his infamous river- "Rivers of Blood" speech. The Brixton Uprisings of '81 saw tensions between between the police and the black community implode. The Thatch right years left millions of working class and marginalised communities in austerity. Living as proud Rastafarian women in Britain was a struggle for both Sheba and Sister Benji. Recalling the time when she wanted open business, Sheba went to the bank for a loan, uh, when black people still kept pandas clo- uh, padners ago- close by. Uh, quote, On the phone everything was fine, she says. They said come in. I walked into the office and I saw the man's face I knew I wasn't going to get a loan. <laughs> That must be so jarring. Like, it's how you you sound fine in the voice. And then, like, oh, he's black. ah, oh, she's black. <coughs> just, just, the eyes popping out of their fucking head. Imagine that. Anyway. Uh, we, Rastafarian wiz- women, always had a headscarf in that way, says sister, sister Benji. But just going for interviews, I mean, just being black is an issue in itself. They, they tell you to come along and the moment you turn up, they find excuses. I remember going for one job at a very well-known establishment and went through everything for the job. The lady was very polite and nice. In the interview, she said, "Oh, I think you'd be bored with the job. I think you're overqualified." I'd never heard that before. I've heard, I, I've heard overqualified. I've heard that before, and I just find that bullshit. To be honest, I find that complete bullshit. Like, then I can help you be better on that front, isn't it? If I'm overqualified, then you know what? What's the beef? Like, what the fuck does overqualified mean? I mean, it's nothing to me. Like, I've applied for the job. I know what it is. I, if I I don't give a shit if I qualify, that's my issue. Like that's my issue. If I think I'm above this, anyway. <clears throat> Just let me give me a minute. Fucking hell. Um, as working women, that really pissed me off. As working women, uh, she excelled as a business uh, owner, while sister Benji devoted her time as a teacher in black supplementary schools. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, they dealt with frequent quips around Bob Marley, ganja smoking, the assumption that everyone and everything black was from Jamaica at that time. <clears throat> uh the racism and stereotypes of what it meant to be rasta reverberated not just among society at large but also among the black community that they worked alongside quote they black people were just thinking about uh are just thinking we're struggling to keep up with these people white people and we rasta people came to bring everything down everyone down uh, that was the view at the time says sister benji unquote uh as Rastafari women exist existing in a dominant popular culture but with only and men like Bob Marley and poet Benjamin Zephaniah becoming the face of the movement in Britain and around the world. The two women dealt with my, my misconceptions about their oppression in a religion that preaches pride in who you are. Quote, it's a misconception because his majesty ensured uh, that Queen Empress Menon uh, was crowned the same time as him. Uh, there is a balance that we are going to seek between man and a woman to explain Sheba. And it's very important that uh, that balance is maintained now because the rest of the women are as subservient to outsiders a lot uh, a lot of people tend to go the other way to prove it but the uh, but the fact is it's about balance i've always been independent and i've always felt it's important to be independent my husband and i got married in 81 within a couple of years being together we started to grow our locks together we were together for nine years and had two children he cut his locks and he cut his locks he insisted i cut mine too So I did, but I managed to make a deal with him that if I cut mine off, he couldn't touch the children's. By the next year, I left him and started to grow my locks out for the second time and really embraced the liberty. When we split, I was freer." In 2011, the census found that Judaism and the Islamic faith were among the top six being practiced uh, in England and Wales. Uh, Rastafari came as the least with just under 8,000 people recorded as following the movement despite its impact on public culture. Sister Benji believes that this uh, that to deal with stigma around the way of the life. Uh, let me say that again. Sister Benji believes that to deal with stigma around the way of life, uh, Rasta people need to lead in places where there still aren't many of them represented. Quote: If people want to know about Rastas, they can Google. For me, it's about legalizing. When I'm at the airport, to say they say to take you off your headscarf, and I have to say this is a part of my culture, my religion. Nowadays, everything is wide open. Some people wear their locks out, so it's hard to come and say this is how it is for some of us. When things are in place on a legal basis and recognised that is what's required, nobody messes with the Muslims or the Jews. We're still going to be fighting uh, because even as black people today, we're still fighting. Things have gone a little better because we have equality laws, but when you look around, who are these laws for? Unquote. Since its Brit- uh, arrival in Britain throughout the 50s and 60s, the Rasta movement continues to influence uh, culture around the world from reggae music, its Pan-African sim- symbolism to the trend of veganism, it, and as even white Rastafarians join the Liberty after all these years. For Sheba, who visited Ethiopia in, early, in the early 90s, she says that living in the with Jar on new shores has given her most fulfilment, quote, I find that living as a Rastafari woman in London with all its challenges, gives me a great sense of achievement in terms of turning the circle back to where it was being who I am in a real sense, rather than what well, the world dictates I ought to look or who, who I ought to be. Uh, I find that living as a Rasta woman gives me the chain, uh, gives me that charge of self-confidence and a self-fulfilling manner, because I feel I because I just feel that living like this means my ancestors are pleased. They see that I don't, didn't weaken and become the thing that they were beaten and punished to be, Unquote. Sister Benji's old school friends still remind her of the time when she turned everyone raster at the school gates, and now sits down with her mum and talks fondly about the way of life that captured her heart back in Jamaica, quote. I really enjoyed that experience, says Sister Benji. These days now, we, we these days we can now sit together and read about all of that. And she says, you know, there was so much that was true in that time. So for me, yes, that's a bonus, Unquote. Yeah, that's the entire article. Um uh, for the sake of time, I won't uh, say too much about it um afterwards. But yeah, man, I just um I find uh, rastafarianism fascinating. Not to the point where I'm gonna, you know, participate in it. Um I ha I, I well first of all I hate growing my hair out. <laughs> um but, so that that'll just be an irritating thing for me. Um but yeah man, it's just um it is a fascinating uh way of life, especially from a purposeful standpoint and especially in the prism of uh of being black um, and being black in the uk as well like it's um is extremely fascinating and also being rastafarian women of something that i don't think most like, like the article briefly said you know we think about bob marley or in the uk we think about benjamin zephaniah we don't think about uh, we don't think about rastafarian women and uh, that, that's a that's a very the whole thing is just a very fascinating thing to me get to the final segment uh, all about society and this is all about voice notes um, so I don't know if you guys use voice notes i don't know how uh, uh, frequently used it is by people um, for me personally I, f- I use voice notes sparingly not not like to completely remove myself from texting um, but I you know I use a voice note now and again if I if, if I feel like it needs to be you know just said you know what I mean just for effects. I, just just calling someone an idiot, like, you know, on, on text, is not enough. Like, I, have to, I have to, like, boom, you fucking idiot. Yeah, you know, you have to do it. Um, but, yeah, you know, I, I and but this article anyway, um, actually, funny enough, I actually, <laughs> like, as soon as I was about to, while I was doing this episode, uh, in between one of the pauses, um, uh, someone, a uh, friend, uh, hit me up on IG, and obviously voice notes on that one, VMs on that one. Um, only done in minute spurts, so so I was just bombarded with like several. <laughs> it was as hilarious as I was just about to do the cycle and they just sent me that. It was kind of funny. Um so this is by Miss Annie Lord, um also by the Guardian here. Um this is called Intimate or Irritant, our voice notes killing the phone call. Um so yeah, there's a lot of um stuff inside this. Um so yeah, anyway, let's let's jump right. I lay on my bedroom carpet looking at the blue of the ceiling, feeling like I was in a teen movie. My phone buzzed and I picked it up to respond to my crush's last text, except this time it wasn't a text, but a voice note. A short audio file you send via Facebook, Instagram, or WhatsApp. Not Twitter, by the way. Just, um, you know, side note. Twitter, get your shit together. Seriously. I don't even want voice tweets. I don't really care about that. I more about just care about getting VMs on there. I just like the variety. I'm not going to do it every time, like I said, but, you know, I'd like sometimes. I feel like a voice message is just, it just benefits. You know what I mean? Sometimes I don't want to text an essay. Maybe I just want to say it in two minutes. Anyway, it was the first time I heard his voice. It was flat, low and attractive. He asked me how my day had gone. My stomach fluttered because I knew this meant he wanted to get closer to me. Yet I also freaked out because there was so much pressure to get my response right. At first, I ignored the switch in the communications and started typing out a message because I hate my voice. The way I can hear my nerves prickle through my speech, the higher pitch of my int- 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 intonation, and the number of times I say like. But don't voice notes feel so much more intimate? Hearing the subtleties of other person's speech as if they were whispering in your ear, and I wanted to get closer to him. So I focused on getting comfy and pushed push the record button. In response to this, how was your day? I started telling him about the bike I just got. It hurt so much on your Volva. I only lasted about 10 minutes before I limped off. Uh, His response was awkward. Yeah. I can't say about uh, women's engineering down there. The seats are probably built for a male anatomy. (laughs) Wow. Say that again, I replied in another voice note, in a mock, sultry voice. He didn't reply. I recorded another note. I I didn't actually think you were being sexual then, I began, a slight breathlessness hanging off each word. I was joking because you sounded so formal, you know. On and on I went, it was excruciating. I should have deleted the recording, but I was so panicked I forgot I could do that. <laughs> I was so panicked I forgot I could do that. I imagined him raising his eyebrows on the other end of the line, playing my note back to his friends, laughing at me. In a last-ditch attempt to salvage the unsalvageable, I changed the subject. Do you like Drake's new album? It was obviously obvious. And from then he igno- From then on he ignored me. That was kind of hilarious. <laughs> some, I don't know, like, was it bag shit? I'm not, I don't know, I don't know. Um, I, I, yeah, anyway. Um, just, well, insecure. It reminds me of insecure, there you go. So I think that's a closer one to me that I can actually relate to. Uh, this recent encounter will forever remind me why I'm better off texting. Like most 27 Gen Zs, I hate phone calls with their awkward silences and long drawn-out endings. Yep, speak soon, good to chat, bye, love you, bye, yeah, yeah, bye, bye, bye. I hate when people go blah, 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 just, just calm down. Uh, but with, <laughs> whether I use voice notes or not, my peers, uh, among my peers, they are becoming ever harder to avoid. When WhatsApp introduced them in 2013, 2013, ladies and gentlemen, Twitter still hasn't done it. Are you are you taking the piss? Anyway, just a minor, just a minor gripe I have about that. Receiving a voice note felt like a novelty. Something more human in a sea of emojis and abbreviations. Now around 200 million sent every month. Uh, instead of a simple I'll meet you outside the station text, friends now send long rambles about how they were going to catch uh, such a such a train, but then they realised the bus would drop them outside. And while they were on the bus, they thought about this idea for a novel, dot dot dot, it's like having to sit through an anxiety <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky I edit this, eh? Uh, Twitter has introduced a voice note feature, as have dating apps hinge, bumble and happen uh, no E, very different wording there, um, ha- I was I was watching Apprentice the other day, right? And um, it's a ma- major side note, but I was watching Apprentice the other day, right? And um, they they had there was it was a one a couple I'm catching up, so it was one a couple of weeks back, and uh, they had to name a game. Um, one of them called it Time, right? Bet basic, right? Um, but the other one called it Arctic uh, Survivor and didn't have the second C. Um, I, I, I feel like they just need to word shit in simply, right? And just um, Remove a letter and just see what happens, because you know, I was it? But then the geeks like go, "Do you know how to spell Arctic?" And that's what the whole episode was about. And you didn't spell Arctic, didn't spell. I think she got fired because of it, the homegirl. Um, but yeah, then you have happen, like uh, as a as a dating app. So you know, you'd be you that, Just anyway, double standards. I'm just saying. Last month, dating website string. There's so many dating sites. I've never heard of these. <laughs> I've heard a hinge above. bubble. I've never heard the other two. Um, Dating West String launched with the tagline, Date With Your Voice. Mm. Oh, that sounds painful. I like the option. I don't want to just do that. That sounds a bit... Mm. In 2018, American singer Charlie Puth uh, felt passionate enough about voice notes to name an album after them. And on her latest release, 30, Adele took, his, took this tribute a step further by including a voice note from her son, Angelo, in the track My All Up." Yeah, for something seemingly so inoffensive, voice notes are incredibly divisive. One friend calls them, quote, the worst thing to happen to communication since the scene receipt on Messenger. <laughs> That's great. i yeah, uh, I don't mind. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, people don't even, people just take them off now if they don't like it, so it's not an the option. Another who pushes a pram says they're indispensable. They are beloved of younger generations, but older family members seem to find them baffling. Social media comments range from mundane observations, like the Twitter user who got four, 140 142.6 uh, likes. Point six likes. I'm assuming that's a thousand. There should be a thousand, and there, like a K. Anyway, uh, for pointing out how she often how often she sends a voice note with. So yeah, it's the more impassioned rant on voice note etiquette. Uh, for voice note fan, model and digital editor Maddie Reed, 23, who sends 10 to 50 a day over WhatsApp. No, that's that's cracked. Uh, that's tapped. My, much of their appeal lies in how Efficient, they are to send, particularly when you're on the move. It's like a phone call, except you don't have to rely on both parties being free at the same time. Text messages don't convey emotional nuance in the same way voice note can. Maddie says, if you're broadcast if you're broaching a sensitive topic, a lot can get lost in translation over text. That's why, if I'm casting a date or telling a friend something tricky or anything that could be misconstrued, I will almost always do it via voice note, so the other person can hear how I'm actually feeling. Unquote. And I feel like that's reasonable, right? But just not for every single thing, like not just removing text in, or you know, wholesale. I feel that's just a bit mad. Um, but anyway, readers' right to think voice is more reliable way to express oneself than text. Silke Pullman, I'm assuming as a, with the e, I'm assuming as you say, the uh, Silke Pullman of Essex University Psychology Department, uh, right down the road there, says quite vocal cues can uh, voice cue voice. Wow, vocal cues c- alone can communicate our internal states, emotions, attitudes, motivations, without the need for additional words. Unquote. When we hear people talk, she says, uh, any discrepancies, such as someone who insists they're fine but doesn't really sound fine, can be picked up within a, c- a couple of milliseconds, forcing a listener to reevaluate the message. So, if can send a date via voice note, the other person will be able to decipher from the tone whether the speaker is, really is busy or losing interest. Whereas whether something's coming up, te- uh, something's come up, text it's harder to work out the sender's true feelings, especially if it's, it includes kisses, emojis, and other and multiple characters. I'm so sorry, uh, to for example, to warm up, the move the message. I do hate when people do that. Like, just be honest with me. I mean, um, it's less an issue, less of an issue with, uh, with older generations who tend to interpret text messages at face value. If someone replies okay, they assume it means they're actually okay. Whereas my, a person my age, I'm 26. Uh, in the article uh, is more like well I'm nearly 26 personally but anyway uh, is more likely to think the brevity of the response means the sender is annoyed <laughs> it's weird it's weird how I feel that <laughs> so so highly god damn it uh, voice notes bypass the slightly exhausting code of texting etiquette that can make it a minefield of course voice notes are not just a text substitute increasingly people use them instead of the traditional phone call they give you authority says Pullman Quote, in a normal conversation, you might have little control over how often you get your voice heard. The other person could talk at on talk on at you for minutes and uh, unless you felt comf- comfortable interrupting, you'd end up just listening. Real conversations are more fluid and prone to changes. If the other person shows no interest in what you're saying, for example, uh, but voice notes protect you from that. This may explain why the majority of people who send me voice notes are women. It gives them an avenue to speak in the same way men do without fear of being cut off or dismissed. That's a good point. That's a really good point. I didn't think about it like that, but yeah, I can see that. I can see that. That would be interesting. Uh, But not everyone likes having that much power of an interaction. According to Bernie Hogan, a senior research fellow at Oxford Internet Institute, uh, it is the one-sidedness without important social cues that makes voice notes a challenge for some people. Quote, during phone calls, we modify our tone and the content of our conversation uh, according to the feedback we get from the people we're talking to, he says. In the absence of that feedback, we must work hard to think about the person on the other end of the phone. For some people, that comes very easily. Others don't care. But a third group get very self-conscious about having to ad-lib on the spot, unquote. I get immediately self-conscious ad-libbing on the spot. But I still prefer phone calls to voice notes because at least the other person can chime in with the experience that resonate with uh, what I'm saying. I like being able to hear them in a way that expresses sympathy. I feel totally at sea. With the without these cues and begin to doubt the content of what I'm talking about. Do they want me to wrap up a story, or does it need more detail to be interesting? It's what happened when I was sending voice notes to a guy to the, that guy I liked. I worry if I'm making the other person listen to something that they would rather avoid. "Quote: It makes me paranoid that I'm wasting someone's time." Agrees voice note skeptic E.C. Gladstone, photographer 23. She likes the feeling of sending a voice note to making a point in a university seminar. I just want to get out what I'm saying as quickly as possible, but then there there are these people, usually men, who go on these long tangents for five minutes, which don't have anything to do with the question because they feel they have the space to do it. I don't feel like I have the space. Okay, I, I, I laughed in the middle there because I do tend to send long-ass voice notes, but I'm not doing it just for the fuck of it, okay? I'm just trying to elucidate my point i'm trying to make my point full it's not being me it's not me being a dude for dude's sake right i'm not just like you know randomly going on tangents like i do here on the podcast right i don't i don't do that in regular conversation right only if it mo- you know moderately applies or it's casual conversation right if, if, if we're just like chatting on text or whatever send a voice note right and then you want to tell a story it's like all right let me tell you your story you know what I mean? and sometimes it takes five minutes some stories take 10 here's what it is have I sent a twelve-minute story before? Yeah, and sue me. <laughs> I'm carrying on. There's something quite self-indulgent about thinking people care to listen to you But taking a taking talking for a long time, indeed any length of time without interruption. Oh, I feel attacked right now. <laughs> when, when's this podcast ended? Not sure. Uh, the end of cycle, hopefully. <laughs> oh this is hurting, this is hurting me uh, without interruption you don't need uh, you don't know where the other person is they might have to put infos in to listen and when they finally get sorted you might be saying oh sorry one sec just in the shop yeah this is the blue ones I mean I've had that before I've had it the amount of time the amount of time I've been in a conversation with my mate and like he's he's doing shit and he's gone to the shop or he knocks into a person and I'm just, he's like talking to him, just like bro you're on the phone to me wrap it the fuck up like what the fuck um, so if they have the phone to their ear, I just whisper shit into their ear, just creepy shit, and just make them move faster. Um, it works. Try it, it works. Anyway, I feel attacked this whole thing, and maybe I shouldn't have done this. <laughs> okay. Voice notes are very close to podcasts, I, I've i recently discovered. Uh, voice note devotee Reed reassures me that, quote, it's not about loving the sound of my own voice. Agreed, it's not. I don't love the sound of my own voice, even I have two podcasts. Okay, calm down. Um, and use the fact that she doesn't listen back to them as proof of this. But if she doesn't want to listen to her own uh, notes, isn't that proof of something else? Then no one likes listening to voice notes in the first place. I normally hate sound of my own voice, though this often changes when alcohol is involved. Recently I came back from a night-, night out and was lying on my bed, trying and failing to persuade myself to stop scrolling on my phone and take, out- take my makeup off before I pass out. Uh, somewhere between the Prosecco haze and the inability to use my fingers properly, I started sending voice notes. One to my friend about the guy at the gym who seems to treat the place like a social club. Another to my mum about what I want for my birthday. And then another three to people I barely speak to anymore. I told Gladstone about this experience and she confessed to sending out drunken voice notes too. Quote, the other night I sent about seven to all my friends in the morning. Uh, I sent all the ones which hadn't been played yet because I couldn't bear the bear people listening to them. Uh, if I Quote, unquote, if I like sending voice notes when I'm drunk, when I'm feeling more self-assured... Perhaps it's not the voice note I have a problem with, but my own confidence in what I have to say. Either way, I need to learn to love voice notes, because if ever more variations of them are being developed. Hogan thinks the next big thing will be features uh, that allow us to sound like someone else, say Bugs Bunny or Britney Spears, like a filter, but on sound rather than image. That just sounds horrible, I would never use that, unless it's literally for comedic effect. And to be honest, if you're going to be an impressionist, do it properly, like, you know what I mean, if you're in about it, don't be about it. Anyway. Says, says the amateur impression personnel. Uh, Reed says her main reason... Did you get my kermit the other week? Come on. Anyway, get on my level. Uh, Reed says her main reason for using voice notes is... Quote, fostering closeness with people I don't get to see. With a fake voice, you'd no longer hear the ripple of nerves as they talk, talked about a job interview. or high-pitched squeals, they recalled a great date. It wouldn't be a voice note at all, would it? Uh, in that case, I'd probably send one. Clumsy flirting as told by Brittany might just work so that was a very fun article um nice fun one to finish on you know the heavy beginning that we had in this episode and uh i feel attacks from multiple fronts all of a sudden i feel like people listening to me are just um just <laughs> just I don't, please please don't please don't think of me as, as a as a dickhead now because i can see it you know a guy with six podcasts you know running concurrently not concurrently but you know running um and you know just Send in 12-minute voice notes. Not every time, okay? I, I did it once. That's the longest I've ever done, right? It's not, not on average. Average is probably about like three minutes. Um, And that's probably being soft. Um, but, yeah, you know. It's... I only... That's the point. I don't do it for, like, 30... The, for the quick ones. Like, I hate when people just send, like... What do you mean? Like, on... Why? Why do you just text? What do you mean? If you're going to say... Excuse me. If you're going to say less than ten words, don't put it on a voice note. That's my rule. If, if just just put it in text. There's no point in having a two second voice note of going like what? Why? Why are you doing that? Why 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 just text it? Like do I need that? Do I need the two seconds of what? No, what's the point? So that's why I do long ones because sometimes I need to elucidate and sometimes I don't want to write. Uh, I don't want to text an essay. I'd rather just say it because you know you can you can get you can get more detail in it. Um, so yeah, fuck you. I do I do voice notes. Up yours. And when I said, ladies and gentlemen, for the fifth M podcast note garbage carbon be It's been what's good. Intro music has been too much my vanilla. You can find his link in the full show notes. There's Job Brex for busy track. You can also find their link in the full show notes. There's an happy hi for busy's charismatic interlude. You can also find his link in the full show notes. And with that said. Hope you all have a good week. I shall just try and do the same. But until the next time, take it easy, ladies nice and gentlemen.